No one has the balls to stand up like I'm doing right now. Stop the crap already. We're all Americans. We're all equal. I don't see black. I don't see Asian. I don't see anything but American. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. Last week, we discussed the beginning of Bo Deedle, what I was all about, my work ethics, experience that we talked about as far as being able to use experience in your whole life. A little summation, a little bit of a summation from last week was growing up with a very strict father from born in Germany and a mother from Catania, Sicily, working day and night as a young kid, staying away from the organized crime kids that I grew up with because I was fearful of not them. I was fearful of my father, what my father would do to me if he ever knew I was hanging out with him. And it was one little story I missed. And I think it's a very important story. I talked about growing up with the Scopo family and John Gotti. And I'll never forget, there was one night, and uh, it was a Saturday night at a place called uh, some kind of Jet Burger on Cross Bay Boulevard. I was with my best friend, Ronnie Strapone. Ronnie and I grew up together in Ozone Park. Really good guy. He always had my back whenever we were in fights. Tough guy. And uh, this was a night when we went to get some hamburgers. And I'm sitting in on an MG that I borrowed from my other friend. And there was a gang of guys. And all of a sudden, guy sitting on the car. He said, hey, get the fuck off my car. And the guy didn't say a word. All of a sudden, he came around and gave me a shot over here, chipped my tooth, opened my eye up. He hit me with a brass knuckle. Next thing is, I got out of the car, I break a Nintendo. I'm swinging at these guys, whacking them. Ronnie comes out, and they all ran away. I go back to the corner, and uh, Joey Scopel was there, and all the guys in the corner, they're getting cars. Now we're searching for these guys. They're not around. Around... Two o'clock in the morning, Ronnie says to me, Strapone, says, come on, Bo, let's take a ride. Let's look around for the, all of a sudden, he goes, there's the guy. I said, Ronnie, I don't remember what he looks like. He goes, that's the guy. He was walking with a girl. So Ronnie said, just you stay in the car so he doesn't see you. He tiptoes behind him with a ratchet iron, and he tiptoes, and he starts whacking him in the back of the head. The guy fell a couple of times, and Ronnie beat the living shit out of him. He ran away. He was bleeding a lot. And next thing is I go to the hospital, I get all stitched up. Word comes back to the corner where I hung out that this guy named Johnny Sears, he was a professional boxer. He wanted to meet me and fight me under the old wooden bridge in Howard Beach. So I says, yeah, I'm gonna go meet him. All of a sudden, Joey Scopel goes, you're not going anywhere. They're going to set you up. They're going to kill you. They got the pagan motorcycle gang guys on his side, and they're going to kill you, Bo. I said, Dad, this is a fight. So he goes, baloney. Saturday noon, you come by my house around 1130. I'll never forget. He come down with a paper bag, two revolvers, 38. They will load him. I get in the car. And who's in the car? I'm sitting in the back seat in the old 66 Fleetwood. John Gotti is on one side of me. Dennis Green is on the other side of me. In the front seat, Joey Scopo's driving. And uh, Foxy of New Lots, really tough guy. He's the passenger seat. We go to the old wooden bridge. Uh, Gotti's sitting with me. And Joey Scopo says, Bo, you don't get out of the car. You just sit here. So now Gotti's got a gun. <laughs> Dennis Green's got a gun. And... Uh, Joey Scopo comes out with Foxy and Nulods, and all of a sudden, out from under the old wooden bridge, these gang guys come out, long-haired. One guy had a machete. 
All I saw was Joey Scopo laying these guys out and Foxy. The bridge wasn't that high. It was maybe 12 feet. And I saw them beating the living crap out of these gang members. Toughest guys I ever saw. One-punch knockouts. Next thing is the cops cars come from all over the place. They grab Joey and uh, they bring him into this little hut that was there. And the next thing is Joey walks out. Probably paid the cops off, but cops didn't lock up anybody. And that was the end of it. But that was my first time. I really believe my life was saved by Joey Scopo and and, and John Gotti because they were going to kill me. So now I go into the Golden Gloves. I meet this guy after that. Let's fast forward. Eventually, Johnny Sears is a professional boxer, and I have to lock him up on a murder case that I caught. And it's just my whole life just turns around and around. And also growing up, there was a bar on Leffitt's Boulevard and there was a guy who owned it. His name was Jimmy Burke. And Jimmy Burke turned out to be Jimmy Conway in the movie Goodfellas. So my life really starts to touch upon all these characters that I grew up. So now we're fast forwarding back and we're going back to the police academy where I grabbed that guy, burglarizing the house, chased him. And that was the beginning. Then when I went to the 110 precinct in uniform for a short period of time, uh, we started to uh, get, go after all the gun guys, the Colombian drug dealers. And we made lots and lots of arrests. And a lot, I started to notice a little bit of a jealousy in the police department when, when all these cops are out there. Nobody's locking anybody up. And I'm locking everybody up. And they go, you're trying to make us look bad. I wasn't trying to make anybody look bad. I just trying to get the guns and the bad guys off the street. And I thought that was what I was supposed to do as a cop. And that's what I took an oath to do. So now uh, we're, we're following the police cars around. I've mentioned during the Black Liberation Army days where they were shooting cops. I think we had 11 shot one year and 13 killed another year. And uh, they were ambushing marked police cars. And so we would follow them around. I had a shotgun. And the next thing is the captain says to me, uh, you, you like this plain clothes thing. Maybe we'll leave you in plain clothes. And that was the beginning of like an anti-crime. Then I went to this college, John Jay College. I took sociology and all kinds of subjects. I never, never went to class. I got a B average. So that just shows you what the degree from John Jay College means to me. And a, uh, uh, I, I had... Uh, no flavor for sitting in a classroom where people are telling me about what I was experiencing on the street. You can't teach people in a classroom what you're going to experience on the street. Again, experience comes back. So I didn't stay with that. I should have stayed with that. I prob probably could have got a master's degree. I could have maybe been a Ph.D. Maybe if I studied for the sergeant's test, I could have been the chief of the police department. But no, I like being out there. I like going out there, locking up the bad guys. And I didn't have time to study for tests. I was out there doing my job. Next thing that happens is one of the fellas, black guy, I remember, can't remember his first name. I think he's in my book, One Tough Cop. He says, well, they're starting this unit on Randall's Island called uh, Citywide Anti-Crime. Would you be interested, Bo? I says, yeah, because I remember seeing when I was in the 110 precinct, these guys came out of the car with shotguns and they had plain clothes and they had headbands on. And I said, wow, they look cool. I'd like to do that. So I become a member of the original Citywide Anti-Crime so they asked me, Bo, would you ever consider doing decoy work? I says, uh, what is decoy work? You go out there and you pose that you're, you're injured 
or you're, 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 you're drunk or whatever, and you go into areas where there's robberies, and you really go and get bad guys that are out there robbing the, the New York City people. You take the place of them. And I said, damn right, I'll do it. Now you got to remember, this is in the early 70s. Crime was rampant all over the place. And uh, we had a federal grant, so we were able to have brand new cars, all types of cars, taxi cabs, everything. And we would head to the Bat Cave, we call it Randall's Island, and we'd turn out of the Bat Cave and we'd go out to the worst crime areas. And at that time, Times Square was pretty bad as far as the robberies went. And then I decided I would like this decoy. And they actually used to have theatrical makeup. We'd have a makeup place where I'd put dried blood under my eye. I would like, like somebody punch me out and uh, blood in my nose. And what I used to do is I used to put uh, makeup on my hands. I'm sorry to say all my friends, it wasn't blackface. I just wanted to look Spanish that when I decoyed up in Spanish Harlem or in the black areas, I didn't want to look like uh, both from Ozone Park. I wanted to look like I fit in the community. I wanted to be one of the community people that were going to become the victim. And uh, to say I got mugged, I actually, it's documentation that I was mugged over 500 times as a decoy in New York City. 500 times was I injured. I was injured 30 times. I was shot at point blank, didn't hit me, stabbed fractured skull. It went on and on. But one thing I always thought I was in, invincible. And when a guy, I will never forget, my lieutenant was on, we were on 8th Avenue and a guy had robbed me and he had a gun and he put it in my ribs. And the next thing is he put the gun away and he came out with a butcher knife. I turned around because I used to like to see who I was locking up. I didn't want a kid that was an opportunity to grab my wallet and run. Maybe he needed money. I always turned around. I wasn't supposed to. You're supposed to signal for your backup unit to come in and lock them up. I wouldn't do that. You know what I would do? I want to know who I'm dealing with. I turn around and I'd act like I'm stoned out of my mind. I go, give me, give me my wallet back. And sometimes the kids would just throw it at me and run away. You know, they weren't bad kids at all. And I would make sure if I locked them up, I would let the judge and I'd let the DA know. They didn't give me a hard time. But some of them were real bad, smashing bottles on my head. As I said, knife. There was this one guy who escaped out of Attica, and he was a convicted murderer. He had this long kitchen knife. And uh, my lieutenant was across the street. They saw the knife out and uh, had the gun in my hand, my little 38 revolver. I used to carry it in my jockey shorts because some, for some reason no one would grab me there. And I took my gun out and I said, drop the, drop the knife, drop the knife. And I'm backing up. Instead of going forward, I'm backing up, drop the knife. But I know one thing. If I got my hands on him, he ain't going to get me. I'm going to get him. Again, we revert back to that supernatural strength that God gave me from all those four hours a day, pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, squats, enormous strength. And I was afraid of no human being except for my father. And then I would, what I did was uh, I yelled at the guy with the knife, and they go like this, Tommy, jump him, like there was somebody in back of him. So he turned around looking for the guy. There was nobody there. He turned around. That was my advantage. I jumped on him. I grabbed the knife, gave him a couple shots. Now I'm fighting with a knife. I got stabbed through my hand here. No big deal. And I'm punching the living crap. And my lieutenant's yelling, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. I didn't shoot him. 
You got to remember, one tough cop never shot nobody. And that's part of the story of my whole career in the NYPD was I always depended on my physical strength. And a lot of times people say, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. So then I was decoying. Then I decided, you know what? I could decoy in Spanish Harlem because of all this makeup stuff I had. And they laid off the police officers in 75. I was laid off for three days also. I went to the 2-5, and then Inspector Grinwald was there, and he knew all about my history. He goes, Bo, would you ever consider decoying in East Harlem and Harlem? I says, let's go. I'm not afraid of nothing, uh, Inspector. So we went out hundreds Hundreds. Then we went after, I remember, Hector Macho Camacho's gang on 112th Street, Lexington area. They were robbing all the community people. So I used to decoy. I actually had people rob me. I used to change my clothes, different clothes on, see a sucker suits. I actually got robbed by the same people quite a few times over and over again. And uh, it was just funny when they would look at me the next day in court. I'd come with a suit on like the way I'm dressed now and I'd show up in court with a suit on and they didn't, they couldn't recognize me. And the great lawyer, uh, the great judge at that time was a guy named Edwin Torres. Edwin Torres, they, they call him the hanging judge. And he took a liking to me. He used to call me to the bench every time I had a rain. You used to have to arraign your own prisoners. You get their fingerprints back, you arraign them. And the judge used to say, Bo, how was this guy? Did he give you a hard time? I said, Your Honor, he grabbed the wallet, or he grabbed my watch. He pushed me a little bit, not that bad. Your Honor, this guy was a bad guy. He smashed a bottle on my head, and then when I told him, you're under arrest, he fought me, and I had to fight him till I could get handcuffs on, till my backup team came. And he used to take that into consideration when he would set bail. And also, he would look at some of their history and some of their records. One of the stories, we used to have AR-1, arraignment part 1, AR-2. AR-2 was an old uh, black judge. His name was Riley. Really nice guy. And he used to have AR-2. But they would shut that down around 530 in the afternoon. So I had a really, really bad guy that had uh, uh, robbed me. He had a knife. And I had a fight with him. And then I looked at his fingerprint. And he had two. He got away with two homicides. They they uh, pleaded it out to five years for two murders or something. I said, and I'm, I'm sitting in a bar drinking at Marufi's. And I tell the rest of the crew, I said, look at the sheet on this guy. He killed two guys. He got away with. I said, "We're gonna. What we're gonna do with him? We're gonna teach him a lesson." So now I get my correction officers' friends uh, in the back. They're in, in the, the court officers are involved. So I get the robes of the judge in AR2. I said, "Let's have a trial for this guy in arraignment." So all the guys are in the audience. They're drinking beer in the audience, <laughs> and I come on. And then one, the court officer goes. All in session now, the court of AR2, the Honorable Beauregard, Bo Deedle is the judge today. And I go, thank you, everybody. I says, can you bring the defendant up? So they bring the guy in the back, the guy who had robbed me the night before and was gave me a real hard time. I says, oh, I'm looking at your fingerprints. You got away with two manslaughters, homicides down to manslaughters. You have quite a lengthy record. 70 times you arrested? Well, I tell you what. Your days of crime have ended today. I said, I'm sentencing you right now to jail for the rest of your natural born life. Take him away from me. We went to his knees screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Everybody, we take him out. 
We put him in the holding cell, but there was one more thing that's got to happen. He had to get arraigned again, really. And so when he went before the arraignment judge, he was crying, Your Honor, I did it. I'm sorry. I didn't know he was a decoy officer. But these were things, I guess, you couldn't do today, but we did them back then. And, uh, and then whenever there was unruly prisoners that would beat up and rape other prisoners in the cell, they would call me in Marufi's, and I'd go in there, and I would put it this way. I would interrogate prisoners, and uh, I only did what I had to do. If someone swung at me, that was going to be the end of it, and I used necessary force, and then I used, I used the force that God gave me where I didn't have to kill anybody. Again, when you're on the street, one guy fired at me. I, I believe it was the 103 precinct. He fired at me uh, five times, point blank. He missed me. He threw the gun down. He goes, you got me. I go, I got you. And uh, put it this way. He went to the hospital deservingly. I could have killed him. When I re-looked at my whole police career with, I think, over 1,600 felony arrests, real good felonies, uh, I realized I could have justifiably killed maybe 15 people that I would have had more medals. But that wasn't what it was about. One tough cop killed nobody. And everybody looks at me, you never used your gun? No, I never used my gun. So when I talk about crime and about correcting crime, and when I hear about the brutalness of police officers, it bothers the hell out of me because it can be done properly. And I did it properly. And over my career, when I was a police officer out there, I depended all the time, like I said in the beginning, on the physical strength. And I had a great partner there, Tommy Colloran. And we all know about the famous nun rape case, which is on one of my podcasts. And I don't want to get into the lengthiness of the timing of that. But this was a case that was labeled as the most heinous crime in New York history. The rape of the nun was done. They carved 27 crosses. And the rape was done on a Saturday afternoon. It didn't hit the news until Wednesday. And then Fat Tony Salerno called me over, who I had met through Ralph Scopo, who I used to drive up there before I became a cop. And he knew me. He goes, you know, what are you and your Irish partner, Tommy Colloran, God rest his soul, one of the greatest partners anybody can have. And he goes, what are you and your Irish partner doing? I says, well, they got 200 detectives involved. Tony, we're not involved with this. He goes, that's bullshit. You're the guys that are hot shots in this area. So then I asked the Captain Fortunato, Give, please give me three days to, I, to work on this case. And Tommy was a little depressed because they, he got caught with all these parking tickets. And he may have lost his detective badge. So I said, I got to save my, my partner, Tommy. What could make them not take his detective badge? In my mind, I said, if we ever break this case, we'd be like the fair boys of the New York City Police Department. Only on my, my feelings that I had of being the detective, were we able to break it? And in my book, One Tough Cop, 90 pages are devoted how we broke it. We got one in Chicago, one in New York, and we were able to break this case. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, here was our reward. Tommy and I were partners up in the 2-5 in East Harlem. We locked up all the gang members. We went after them extorting people. You know what our reward was? 
our reward was they shipped me to one end of Brooklyn in the 7-5, the highest crime precinct in, in the city, most murders in the city. And Tommy was shifted to the 8-8 up on the other end of Brooklyn. They separated us. A jealous guy, and his name was Jimmy Sullivan. He had an inferiority complex. Now, I'm no big guy. I had to sleep on the floor to make 5-8. I don't know how this guy made it, but he had an inferiority complex. What was that called? The Napoleon complex. And he didn't like me because he could never take credit for breaking one of the biggest uh, cases. Again, May Ed Koch, most heinous crime in New York history. They raped, the sodomized, the carved 27 crosses, put brooms into, defecated, left the, pushed it on the stairs in a convent. And this animal, two animals that did this. And uh, Tommy and I, on our own, with no help from anybody else, broke that case. And the chief of detectives could never go on TV and go, through intensive investigations, did the detectives of the New York City Police Department detective squad broke this case? No, sorry, Jimmy. It was Bo Deedle and Tom Collin, God rest his soul. We worked our butts off for three and a half days. We got one in Chicago. We got one in New York. No, the guys that broke the case of the nun rape were two cops, two broken down street cops that believed in what we did, knowing our neighborhoods, and we went out on the street, we turned the whole neighborhood upside down, we told the drug dealers, you'll never, you'll never deal another drug, the prostitutes, the pimps, you'll never ever do business until we catch these guys, and we were able to get them in three and a half days, it's the story of story, and if it's ever told properly, it can make every movie look like nonsense, you know why? Because this actually happened. And then I get thrown into Brooklyn and I walk in and they had to promote me. The chief of detectives was against it because I wasn't a detective yet because I was making double, triple my, my, my salary with overtime. I said, I don't have to be a detective. Leave me as a white shield. I'll make all this overtime. Then I finally says, you know what? I want to be a detective. I like that detective badge. So I went there and I had a couple of integrity review board uh, cases where a guy offered me 10000 uh, with heroin and wanted to buy. I put a tape recorder on. So with these integrity review cases, plus I was one of the highest uh, felony guys in the, in the street crime unit at that time. So I was up to be promoted. And every time I, I got up to be promoted, I knocked it down. So I got so disgusted one day and depressed, I went to one police plaza. And I'll never forget this captain. His name was Scott. He was a black guy, great guy. I walk into his office. I take my cop badge out. I says, I'm quitting. I throw my badge on his desk. I said, look, I was supposed to be promoted, and I'm being, I'm being kept from being promoted because people don't like me. I'm resigning. He grabs my badge. He says, son, put this in your pocket. Give me a day. And there was a guy named Robert McGuire. He was the police commissioner. What a man he was. He knew all about my plight. And he said, the commissioner knows all about it. Please, Bo, give me a day. Next thing that happens is they were promoting 50 detectives the next day. I was 51, and I got promoted the next day. And I'll never forget what I did was I shook every chief's hand, including Chief Jimmy Sullivan, and I shook his hand, and I said, Thank you, Chief. I know you don't like me, but you know what? I love being a cop. Now I'm going to love being a detective. You can see the steam coming on. The chief of internal affairs, his name was uh, Chief Guido. He goes, Deedle, I'm going to lock, he whispers in my ear, I'm going to lock you up one day. I said, Chief, you're not going to lock me up because all I do is my job. Next thing happens, 
real fast. I'm in Brooklyn, 7-5. Homicide comes down. I meet the great Herbie Holman, was a lieutenant, heavy set guy. He says, Deedle, you got the first homicide. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. I was on the subway, and Herbie's fighting with the transit lieutenant. It's mine. It's yours. I said, don't worry, guys. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. And now... Big, the uh, Chinese restaurant robbery, three guys hit a, uh, uh, a church, Jehovah's Witness church, robbed 200 people. I So I knew one thing, the anti-crime guys wore the vest. I meet with the anti-crime, now I'm a big squad detective, big deal. Next thing I meet with the anti-crime guys, because I know they know the area, I tell them, here, we're going to go after this crew here. I worked together with the anti-crime guys. We ended up locking up the three guys that robbed this 200 people in the in the, in the church. Next thing that happens is Deedle's there, Deedle's there, Deedle's there, and then the great Big case, which we highlighted in one of my podcasts, uh, was the Palm Sunday Massacre. Now, remember, the nun rape was labeled as the most heinous crime in New York history. Next case up was the largest mass murder, 10 dead, 8 children under the age of 12, 2 adults, Palm Sunday Massacre. Now, Tommy Collin and Bo Deedle didn't do that alone. I was part of a great task force of the best detectives in New York City. I worked hard on it, but the other detectives, everybody worked hard. I was very fortunate to be named as the arresting officer in this case. I got put on the front page of the papers. I got put in the newsreel walking this creep out. It was funny. We were looking for him. And on one of my podcasts, I talk about the whole investigation, so I don't want to go over it right now. But I had to lock him up. He was in jail. We were, had him under surveillance. He slipped the surveillance, and he raped and sodomized his mother, and he was in jail. And uh, every one of these guys that I locked up are all out. They're probably, maybe they're even deputy mayors of large cities by now. Who knows what's going on? After that happens, I get a call. My Arabs, my friends from Saudi Arabia were in town. Now, I had an illegal, because you weren't allowed to work off-duty back then. It was called moonlighting. You couldn't do it. I had a bodyguard company. I used to travel to Saudi Arabia, all over the world, because arm wrestling. I was a New York State arm wrestler, and they used to have these big Lebanese bodyguards, and they used to love me arm wrestling. They're like 300-pound guys, and the prince used to bet money on me at these clubs, at these belly dance clubs, and I'd rip their arms out all the time. So I was like, a, I guess, a court gesture. You could call them, but I came home with hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes, and they used to give me cash, I used to put it in my socks, I used to bring it back to the country stuffed in my socks. Statue of limitations, long gone. And, but I, I did put it right into the economy. I bought a new car, new Cadillac, I bought nice suits, I bought Brioni clothes, I bought beautiful sh 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 shoes, shirts. So I used to put the money right back into the economy. I was a moron, I didn't save, because I didn't know what saving was. Hey, you have ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in your pocket, how can you spend it? I also gambled too. So I used to go through the money, I fed it back into the economy. Now, the Arabs call me to the Helmsley Palace Hotel. They're in the triplex. Michael Jackson's in one, we're in the other one. So the prince hears about Michael Jackson, I meet Bill Bray, who was the director of security for Michael Jackson, ex-New York detective. I said, you think I could get my princey to come over and meet Michael? He goes, sure, boy, whatever you want. He goes over and meets him. So now they turn on the TV, and who's on the TV? I'm walking out, Christopher Thomas, the guy that killed the uh, 10 people, Palm Sunday Mesca. And the prince is all are so impressed. I have Abdul Aziz bin Nasser. I had Fahad bin Turkey bin Abdul Aziz. And they go, Bo, you're so famous. 
we go to La Jolla tomorrow. Now, we were supposed to go to City Hall. We were going to get, I think I was even going to get promoted to a second or first grade detective, whatever the hell it was supposed to be. I called my lieutenant up and I says, look, I'm going to take a couple of days. He goes, what are you, nuts? He goes, you're getting, you're getting citated by the mayor tomorrow. I says, look, I'll see you when I come back. I hop on a private jet. We go to La Jolla. We have a big party in La Jolla at his house. Next thing is the princes say to me, Bo, you're very famous. Did you ever jump out of a plane? And I said, no, make a long story short. This is the break of my life, probably. I end up jumping out of a plane. I really wasn't instructed too well. And I ended up breaking my leg in half, compound fracture. My ankle was broke. And I'll never forget, they put a tourniquet on me. They say to me, Bo, can you make it back to uh, San Diego? I said, yeah. Next thing is I'm in a, in a hospital for about a month. And then I'm in the... And then, then I'm in the uh, then I'm in the house with all these servants in La Jolla, and I want to come back. I want to be bold, the homicide detective again. And next thing is I come back to New York. They go, well, they're not going to let you come back to full duty. You're going to have to do light duty. Now, light duty is one of these things. I had 30 injuries. I could have retired on any one of those injuries probably. And then what happens is I then go and I say, well, I'm not going to do light duty and I said, I'll put my papers in. I lost millions of dollars because I could have got three quarters. I didn't. I put my papers. I then put my papers and I retire. And then Nick Pelleggi. We're going to start our next story with Nick Pelleggi because he finds out about it. And Nick Pelleggi puts me on the cover of New York Magazine, How New York Lost the Top Detective. That was the difference of the next part of my life, which we're going to talk about movies, books, acting. My life began again with one name, one name, Nicholas Pelleggi. And you go look him up. He changed my life. And to the next episode, we'll talk about my life after retiring from the New York City Police Department. Enjoy yourself till next week. We'll stick with this story until it's over. Thank you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.